to the High Praises Church Podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. If you don't know me, my name is Evan Sastar. I'm the student pastor here at High Praises. And just want to say thank you so much for being here today. If you're tuning in online, thank you so much for joining us online today. It's an absolute honor to be able to pastor your students, to be able to pastor your young people. Uh, I'm not going to lie, I have the most fun job in the church, and I don't apologize for that. It's just awesome. So I love being here. Uh, Thankful to Dad, to Pastor Chris, for allowing me to bring the word today. If you're wondering where he is, he actually has a really neat opportunity. So Pastor Josh Trammell, who was my youth pastor all growing up, five years ago planted Take Heart Church in Greenville. And today is their five-year anniversary. And so they've asked Dad to come up and preach and be a guest speaker and to celebrate with them. And I don't know about y'all. I know we didn't plant Take Heart, but Take Heart came out of our church because Josh came out of our church. And I'm thankful for a church that multiplies. I'm thankful for a church that doesn't sit still but has an impact throughout the upstate and throughout the world. So I am just so excited to be here today and to bring God's word. Hey, a few years ago, before Elizabeth and I were married, she lived in the Charlotte, North Carolina area with her parents. And so for a while, I would take a lot of trips up and down I-85 to go see her and, and spend time with her. And I remember one particular time, my car was doing some funny things, and I don't even know why I responded this way. So it was always giving me the light that my tire pressure was low. And either two things would happen. I would check it, and it would be like one tire, and it would barely, like just barely be low. And so then I'd put the air pressure in it, and it was whatever, and I'd move on. Or sometimes it would give me the sign, and then it would just turn off before I do anything. And so for whatever reason, in my little brain in this scenario, I just thought, since it's probably broken, let's just ignore it. That's a good idea. This will turn out well. And so one day I'm driving back, come on, I-85, zooming, a little bit of north of Spartanburg, and I hear this noise, and I'm like, oh boy, what is that? And all of a sudden, I'm starting to lose control of my vehicle, which is so dumb. So I hit the hazard lights, and by the grace of God, I'm in the left lane zooming. I managed to pull all the way over and, like, get my car stopped to just see that I've completely destroyed my tire because my sensor was working and my tire needed air. I don't even know why I did that. It was so unbelievably dumb. Like, my car was telling me again and again and again, you need help. Like, I had the warning signs over and over and over, you need help. And I just decided that it wasn't that big of a deal. I decided to ignore the warning signs. I decided I don't really need to listen to that. I'll brush it off as something else, and I think everything's going to be okay. And the scariest part about me ignoring the warning signs is that that could have ended up being deadly. Like, I could have rolled my car, ran into somebody else, spun out of control. It could have been bad because I decided to ignore the warning signs. And as we relate this to our relationship with Jesus today, I wonder how many in the room or watching online are ignoring God's warning signs. See, every time we open up this word, every time this word is preached, God is always giving us warning signs specifically about our own sin. He's letting us know we are all sinners and we need help. He's giving us the warning sign we are corrupt to our core without Christ. We need to be changed from the inside out. You need help. 
He's warning us we are guilty of sin and under God's judgment, his wrath, you need help. But oftentimes, instead of hearing God's word, we dismiss the warning signs of something else. Maybe you say today, I don't have sin. I'm a good person. I always tip my waitress or my waiter well. I don't cheat on my wife. I've never murdered somebody. I'm a good guy. We try and dismiss our sin that way. Maybe we admit we have sin, but we shift the blame on anybody and everybody else. Well, if they wouldn't have started it, I wouldn't have had to respond that way. If my spouse wouldn't have brought that up and gone too far, I wouldn't have said that. And I want to be sensitive, but, you know, maybe you say, if I wouldn't have grown up in this home or this environment or this dysfunction, I, wouldn't, I would be all right. I would be without sin. I'd be a great person. But the reality of the scriptures is this, is that we are all sinners, corrupted by sin, without excuse, and in need of salvation from God's judgment. And my question to you today is simply this, can you continue to ignore the warning signs? So what I want to ask you to do today, would everyone stand in honor of God's word? Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to read two different scriptures. So I don't know if you've got a Bible in hand or if you just want to watch the screen. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 8 through 17. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. And we're going to connect these scriptures today. So Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8, says this. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me, you, me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be whenever, when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on to it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Then we're going to flip to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. He says this, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thank you. You can be seated. 
So here's what's going on in Genesis chapter 9. God shows up to a guy named Noah and he says, Noah, I promise you and all of the living creatures on the earth, I will never again send a flood that will kill all living creatures on the earth. I promise you I won't do it again. The rainbow is a sign. I will never flood the earth again. But if we're to make sense of God's promise, we need to have a a background of the flood. If God promises to never flood again, we need to ask, well, what is the flood? Why did God send it? Why is he not going to send it again? So it all begins with this Adam and Eve, the first two humans, sin, and, and sin was brought into the world. And after Adam and Eve, every single human being was sinful. No one escaped that sin. They were born into sin. It's why King David says, in iniquity, my mother conceived me. It passes down through the generations. Well, it had gotten so bad in the days of Noah that the scriptures actually tell us that their hearts, the thoughts of their mind, and the intent of their hearts were continually evil always. Their mind and their hearts were continually evil always. Everyone was a sinner, and this sin had gotten to them down deep in their core. That though they were born living spiritually, they were dead. Everyone was affected by this sin. So what does God do? He shows up to Noah. He says, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm judging the earth. You need to build an ark, a really big ship. So Noah does that. He gathers two kinds of all the animals, loads up onto the ship, and sure enough, God sends this flood and wipes out all of humanity except for Noah and his family, eight people in total. And it's important to know this. Noah was not saved because he was without sin or because he was a perfect person. In fact, right after this Genesis passage, Noah gets blacked out drunk and was discovered naked by his kids. Like, Noah's not the perfect guy. Noah was saved because he had faith in God, and God was merciful to him, but not because he was without sin completely. Sin had impacted the entire world. It was a corruption deep in the soul. We are born spiritually dead. And God hates sin so much that he pronounced his judgment. But oftentimes what you and I do is we try and dismiss these facts and either deny our sin or put it on someone else without realizing just how serious our sin is. I mean, honestly, the way that we respond to sin is kind of the way that you and I respond to getting a speeding ticket. Like, I got to make, I just got to confess today Going to Elizabeth's parents' house has gotten me in a lot of trouble because a few months ago, we're driving up to her house, to her parents' house, and I got pulled over for speeding. And just let me explain at least. Going to her parents' house, you don't go up 85 the whole way. Eventually, you get off at this just huge, really long highway. And this highway is located in middle of nowhere, South Carolina. But it's a huge highway. There are so many lanes. You go straight for like 45 minutes, and there's no one on it because you're in the middle of nowhere. So naturally, what do I do? Pedal to the metal, baby. Let's get there. I'm tired of driving. Nobody's here. Well, as I'm driving with nobody around me, a police officer sees me and pulls me over. And thank the Lord, he decided to be gracious to me and only give me a warning. But, hey, if you've been pulled over, you know there's, there's two stages of getting a ticket. The first one is just outright denial. There is no way I was going that fast. 
It didn't even seem, it didn't even seem like I was going that fast. I saw the sign. The sign said 55, not 35. I promise you that. And we just, no, no, no way that we did it. And eventually it sets in, yes, we were speeding. And so then now we turn to the blame game. Well, if my spouse wasn't talking so much and flipping the light on and off and trying to do their makeup or messing with the radio or messing with the air conditioning, I would have been paying attention and not speeding. If the kids weren't throwing food everywhere and actually trying to kill one another, I would have been paying attention and I wouldn't have been speeding. And we shift the, the blame on everybody else except for the actual driver of the motor vehicle. Put it on everybody else. When the truth it's really more like something like this. We don't fear getting a ticket enough to ensure we're going the speed limit no matter what happens around us. That's the actual truth. And as we relate this to our sin, you and I go through these same stages too. Maybe you're in the room today and you honestly believe you are without sin. I'm a good person, I pay my taxes, I smile, I'm great, you know, I, I don't cheat on my spouse, I've never murdered anyone, like, I'm a good person. See, I'm without sin, I'm, I'm, I'm great, you know, God, God's not after me. But what you're doing is you're making your own standard instead of going by God's standard. It's easy to go by your standard, not God's standard. And the truth is, is when we look at God's standard, we're all guilty of sin. Let me get some participation. Let's take a Ten Commandments test. Raise your hand if you're guilty. One of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie. Who in the room has lied before? Raise your hand. Great. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, congratulations, you're a liar. Welcome <laughs> to the club. Great to have you here. The truth is, is that when we measure it up against God's law, we are all sinners. No one is left impacted. We are born into sin. But maybe you fall into the next category, that you admit you sinned, you admit you've done wrong, but it's just not your fault. Well, if my boss wouldn't have treated me like that for so long, if he wouldn't have brought it up first, I wouldn't have did what I did, but he made me do it. Well, if my spouse wouldn't have brought up that thing, wouldn't have gone too far, wouldn't have brought that up that they shouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that. And I want to be sensitive here, but maybe it's if I wouldn't have grown up in that dysfunctional home, if I wouldn't have been in that ruined marriage and treated that way, I wouldn't be without sin. They, they made me like this. And I need to tell you something today. With all sensitivity, I'm sorry for the way people have sinned against you. I'm sorry if you've been dealt a bad hand. I am. I'm sorry for whatever has happened to you, but listen to me. If you would have had a perfect marriage and a perfect family with a perfect job and perfect children, you would still be a sinner. You can't blame it on somebody else. It's not your conditioning. It's you were born in that condition. But the fact of the matter is this, is that oftentimes we just don't fear how much God hates sin to hold ourselves back from doing it. Oh, how we love to talk about God being merciful and gracious and forgiving. And listen to me, he is. He is all of those things, but we want to do it to the detriment of seeing him as righteous and holy and the perfect judge that he also is. And so we use that as a license to sin, an excuse to remain in our disobedience when all the while God hates your sin. 
That's why the Apostle Paul says, don't you know that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? And maybe if you're trapped in this cycle of sin today, it's because you've minimized sin and maximized grace only when God is both all at the same time. He is gracious and yet he is righteous. But if we ended this sermon right now, we would be pretty doomy and gloomy. We would all go home and be depressed and I guess just want to take a nap or whatever. Is there any good news to this sad story? Well, I do have some good news. God first gives it to Noah in the passage that we read today. God floods the whole earth as an act of judgment. But then he tells Noah this, I will never flood the earth and destroy all living creatures again. I give you my word. I make a covenant with you and all living creatures. It'll never happen again. In fact, he tells us that the rainbow in the sky is a sign of his covenant. That when he sees it and when you sees it, we are all, when, we, when you see it, we are all reminded that God will never send the flood to judge the earth again. Well, if God is promising not to wipe out sinners, then what must he be promising? That he plans to redeem sinners. And where do we find this redemption? We find it in our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we flip to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, keep this flood imagery in your brain. Don't forget it. We didn't read that for no reason. There's a connection there. So Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. He's ready to announce he's the savior of the world. He's, he's come to save us. And what's the first thing he does? He finds his cousin named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a prophet. And what John the Baptist has been doing is pronouncing to the world, you are sinners, you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn your back on your sins. You need to commit to not be in your sin any longer. And the way that they would do that is they would come to John at the Jordan River and John would baptize them or immerse them in the Jordan River. So John has proclaimed a baptism meant for sinners. But what's the first thing Jesus does kicking off his ministry? He goes up to John the Baptist and he says, I want you to baptize me. The first thing Jesus does in his public ministry is he stands in the place of sinners. And then what does John do to him? He baptizes him in the Jordan. He immerses him in the Jordan. Let me put it this way. He floods him in the Jordan. Standing in the place of sinners, Christ is flooded by the Jordan. Then standing in the place of sinners, he actually comes out of or comes through the water. And standing still in the place of sinners, the sky opens up and the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And standing in the place of sinners, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, recognizing gentleness and, 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 and kindness, comes down on the son of God. Just as in Noah's day, the dove came down bearing an olive branch, a sign of peace. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down on Christ, standing in the place of sinners. But then what does he do? He follows up by going into the wilderness, and he goes toe to toe with the devil. I mean, right at him. He fasts for 40 days, and the devil is standing there right in front of him, tempting him. 
And what does Jesus do? He never sins once. What in the world is Mark trying to tell us about what Jesus came to do? Why would these be the first two things Jesus does? It's because Jesus came to stand where sinners should be. But in the wilderness, he proves himself to be what sinners never could be. Yeah, in that baptism, he takes the place of where sinners should be. The flood waters, the waters of judgment, the waters of death, and he goes under for us. And yet in the wilderness, he is what sinners never could be. Perfect, obedient, righteous, sinless. And he's doing it for you. What is being modeled here is what's called the great exchange. And you know what the great exchange is. I know you've probably all heard this verse that says this. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin, identified with our sin, stood in the place of sinners. Why? So that sinners like you and me could become the righteousness of God or identify with the righteousness and the perfection of God. What Christ came to do is in this great exchange, receive all of our sin, receive all of your sin. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed, and receive it unto himself as if he had done it, though he had not. And standing in your place, he would take the death and the judgment and the destruction that is yours. But on the flip side, he did that so that we could become the righteousness of God. So in this beautiful exchange, we hand him our sin and Christ hands us back his own righteousness. That Christ lived a perfect life so that my record could be his record. And 2,000 years ago, just as Noah got in an ark and that ark bore the brunt of the flood and the waves, Jesus Christ took the floodwaters of my judgment by dying on a cross so that you didn't have to. But just as Noah came out on the other side of that flood, Jesus Christ came up out of those floodwaters by rising from the grave three days later so that you could have life. Just as Noah came to the other side of that flood to begin humanity again, Jesus rose in power, proving himself to be the Son of God so that the Father would look at you and say, Behold, my son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus came to stand in the place of sinners. And just as the Spirit came down on Christ, just as he rose in Holy Spirit power, we can receive that Spirit too. That we hand him all of our sin, and Christ hands us back 33 years of sinless perfection. And when God sees you, he sees his Son, Jesus If you are a sinner in this room today, if you don't know Christ, listen to me. All of your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Just receive him. All you have to do is repent, turn from your sins, and believe in him, and he will save you. Christ has already done all of the work for you. All you do is receive. But when I first started preaching, I would be nervous to preach this sermon. Because what this sermon is, is the simple gospel. And in my mind, I thought Christians don't need that. Christians are already saved, right? They've already been forgiven, right? 
Christians, it's their job to roll up their sleeves and get to work and be perfect and do all this stuff. But here's what I found, and I want you to listen to me loud and clear. The gospel is for Christians too. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. Actually, I know you're not perfect, and I need forgiveness too. And I want you to know this, if you sin, there's forgiveness. I want you to know this, if your conscience is weak, if the devil is reminding you of who you used to be, if you're constantly thinking about that one sin you wish you could take back, if the devil is attacking your soul, know this, your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake and you are declared righteous in his name. And when the devil comes knocking on your door, threatening the floodwaters of judgment in your heart, look back at the devil and say, I've got Jesus Christ. I'm all aboard the Royal Caribbean cruise ship of my Lord and Savior Jesus. I'm on the top deck suntanning, drinking a smoothie. Your floodwaters of judgment are not for me. Christ stood in our place and he lived a perfect life so that we could be forgiven. When guilt rises up, you are forgiven. When shame rises up, you are forgiven. When you're reminded of your past, you are forgiven. Listen to me, church. You are forgiven in Christ's name. But how do we receive this forgiveness? How do we get on this ark? The ark is Christ. How do we get on this ark? How do we receive this forgiveness? Well, Jesus tells us. He begins his ministry, and this is his first public preaching. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you want to enter into God's kingdom, you repent and you believe in the gospel. What is repentance? Repentance means to identify I am a sinner. That's who I am. I have sin in my life. Without Christ, I am a sinner under God's judgment. But it's to say, I don't want to stay that way. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to be set free from the power of sin. It's to do a 180 and turn around. But if you repent of your sins and turn because you can't save yourself, you need to turn towards something or someone. And so we turn towards faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done to save you and me. To enter into God's kingdom is to repent, turn from my sins, and believe in Jesus. But a problem I've noticed is this, is that many Christians believe that repentance and faith is something you do one time to get into God's kingdom. But you need to know this, repentance and faith is something you do every day, 24-7, to stay in God's kingdom. Repentance and faith is not just the door, it's the ticket that keeps you in. I'm thinking about like, like this way, uh, me and Elizabeth, our, our preferred vacation is going on a cruise ship. We love cruise ships. It's awesome. It's all-inclusive. You don't have to worry about where you're going or what you're going to eat or your entertainment or anything. It's amazing. And COVID has just ruined all our cruising dreams for the next while, but oh well, we'll get back out there. But to get on a cruise ship, you need two things. You need your sea pass and you need your passport. So your sea pass points to something beyond you. You're not just regular Joe Schmo. You are a preferred guest of this cruise ship. You belong there. But then you need your passport. 
Your passport isn't just an identification. It lets you know that you're an American citizen. It lets you go in and out of all these different countries. And before you can get on board, you have to have that. But here's the thing. You also need your sea pass and your passport to remain on the ship and on the cruise. Because you'll go and, and you'll stop at all of these different places and you'll stop in Mexico and these random islands or whatever and you'll do all these things. But if you want to stay on your cruise vacation, when you come back to the ship, you better have your sea pass or your passport or you're spending a few nights in Mexico, probably longer than you wanted to. They're going to leave without you. The sea pass and the passport doesn't just get you in, it keeps you in. And the truth is this, repentance and faith gets you into God's kingdom, but it also keeps you in God's kingdom. Because what repentance and faith says, I'm a sinner, and unless I have faith in Christ, I am under judgment, I can't save myself. And yeah, you can believe that one time, but if you get deep into your Christian faith and you quit repenting, if you get deep into your Christian faith and there's no longer faith, you're in trouble. Repentance says, I'm a sinner. But if you abandon repentance, what are you saying about yourself? Well, I guess I'm not all that bad. And if you abandon faith, which looks outside of yourself, that says, I need a, salvation, I need a savior, I need salvation. And if you're not looking to Christ, who are you looking at? Myself. What you're left is the righteousness of self. And if you just flip those two words around, you get a common phrase called self-righteousness. And as you longer and longer reject repentance and faith, you develop self-righteousness where you believe that you're better than everybody else on your own. And then you become a judge. You didn't spend enough time looking at your own sins, so you're staring at everybody else's. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian and author, was asked why in the Anglican liturgy they confess their sins every Sunday and use kind of aggressive language. In the Anglican liturgy, every Sunday they have a corporate uh, confession of sin and they, they use language like miserable offenders, like, Lord, forgive us, miserable offenders. And somebody came up to him and they're like, isn't this kind of morbid? Why are we talking about our sin all the time? Why are we doing this? We're Christians. Let's move on from this. And in a sermon on this topic, C.S. Lewis says this, The alternative is much more morbid. Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. It is healthier to think of one's own. It is the reverse of morbid. It is not even in the long run very gloomy. A serious attempt to repent and really to know one's own sins is in the long run a lightening and relieving process. I agree with C.S. Lewis where he says if we quit repenting and believing, we will spend all our time thinking about everybody else's sins but our own because we think we have the right to. And I don't know if you've noticed but if we abandon this, we will fall in line with the rest of our culture, which is a merciless one. We've got a culture called call-out culture, which means anytime anyone or a business or somebody else says or does something wrong, instead of going to them to make it right, we call them out publicly and we shame them for just how bad they are. And it's followed up by something called cancel culture 
which is the moment somebody says or does something I don't like, I disagree with, or maybe is very, very wrong, we do everything we can to wipe them off the map instead of, of sending grace and mercy their way. And if you quit repenting and believing, you will fall deep into this culture too. And maybe you've already found yourself that way. Maybe you really believe you're, that, you're all that great. And when your spouse does that thing, you let them have it because you have the right to, right? Or maybe you haven't spent enough time looking at what's wrong in here. When somebody at work does the thing you told them not to for the hundredth time, it's time to go off. You, you, you have the right to. But maybe you haven't spent enough time looking in here. Maybe this is the most serious one. Whenever someone of a different political party or persuasion does something you don't like, do you already have the Facebook post written out to light them on fire with no mercy? Or have you not spent enough time looking at what's wrong in here too? Christians, let me remind you, you are Christians on the internet too. And as we repent and as we believe in Christ 24-7, we are daily reminding ourselves that without Christ, this is all messed up. And without Christ, I'm under God's judgment. And without grace and mercy and forgiveness, where would I be? It is the ultimate guard and protection against self-righteousness. And it is the ticket to get on and stay in God's glorious kingdom. So would you stand today? What I want to ask everybody to do is, I would like you to come down to the altars in so far as you can social distance. If that means you just need to take a step out of your seat, if it means you need to go to the back, but if everyone could come down to the altar as much as they can to social distance, I want us to have that opportunity to step out and have a moment with God, whatever that looks for you. Or if you just want to stay at your seat, if you don't feel comfortable, you stay right there. But I want you to make an altar where you're at then, whatever you want to do. But what I want us to do is as the, as the band begins singing, I want you to know this. That without Christ, you are a sinner. But I want you to hear me too. All of your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. And as we begin to sing this song out, I want you to practice repentance and faith. If you don't know Christ at all and you never have, I want to ask you repent and have faith in what Christ has done for you. If you've backslidden, if you've abandoned God, but you once served him, I want you to have repentance and faith. But listen to me, if you are the most seasoned saint, the most holy person in this room, as we begin to sing this song, I want you to practice repentance and faith. And when you get done praying, and when you get done crying out to God in an act of faith, I want you to throw those hands up and sing the song with them. But would you right now meet with God where you're at and repent and believe in the gospel? Come on. Thanks for listening. 
Be sure to join us Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 o'clock and 1045. For more information, please visit us at highpraises.org.